0: You guys can turn to the end of the book of Matthew. We'll be completing our Matthew series today. This is the end of our journey through the gospel of Matthew. It's been a great spring walking through this with you guys. So this morning we'll look at the very end of the book, Matthew 28. My senior year at a and M, I I got a summer job at an engineering company. We were designing a hybrid bus, and it was my job to help design the suspension. The challenge was, is my first day on the job was the day that my boss left for a two-week vacation. And back in those days, we didn't have cell phones, and nobody checked their email. Like when they went on vacation, they really went on vacation back then. So he was totally unreachable, and that was a problem because he didn't leave me any instructions. He just said, keep working on the bus. So I had to guess, and sadly, I guessed wrong, and so I thought that my job there, I was pretty naive, I thought, well, hey, I'll just, I'll redesign this thing so that it's better, and so I spent two weeks redesigning the whole suspension on the bus. I was actually really excited for my boss to come back, because I thought I would have really impressed him, so third week of my employment begins. Monday morning, my boss walks in, happy and tan from his vacation, looks at all of my work, and suddenly the happiness is gone, and he yells, what the blank have you been doing while I was gone? Because it turns out there was no money or time to redesign the bus. But how was I supposed to know that? I'm not clairvoyant. He didn't leave me any directions. I was incredibly frustrated. I was ready to quit that job that day. I learned that when you don't have directions in life, frustration is inevitable. You're going to end up angry and discouraged because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're called to. In life. That's true whether we're talking about a job or a class or life in general. When you don't know your purpose, when you don't know what you're supposed to do, it inevitably leads to frustration. A famous writer named Henry David Thoreau noticed that and he saw all of these people running through life without purpose and he, he said these, this mass of men leave lives of quiet desperation I've seen that many times in my life. I've grieved over that. There have been so many men and women I have seen in life who live these lives of quiet desperation because they can't find meaning. They can't find a purpose to guide them and so they chase desperately after meaningless things like money and and pleasure and possessions never finding lasting satisfaction. Well, the good news is Jesus does not want you to live. A life of quiet desperation. He wants something great for you. He wants you to live a life full of meaning and and purpose and satisfaction. He wants to give you guidance and direction in life so that you can chase something that really matters. And so this morning we are going to see Jesus' direction for your life. His grand purpose purpose for your life for the rest of your days. We're going to look at Jesus's last words this morning before he ascended into heaven. And what's interesting is that the Bible actually gives us three versions of these last words. Whenever something's repeated in the Bible, it means it's really important. So God gave us Jesus's last command three times. He gives it to us at the end of Matthew at the end of Luke, and at the beginning of Acts. And the basic idea of this final command from Jesus, his last words on earth, the basic idea is the same in all three passages, but each passage gives a unique perspective that gives unique information. And so we're gonna look at all three of these last commands of Jesus. And so we'll start in Matthew. And in the Matthew 28 passage, what it gives us is the big idea, the, the goal of life. So look at the end of Matthew 28. Here is Jesus's goal for your life. Start in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is giving you your job description in life in summary form. And before we look at what that job description actually says, let's notice what it doesn't say. Jesus' job description does not say, Get a college degree, go get a good job, buy a home, and raise a family. In other words, the American dream is not part of Jesus' job description for your life. Those are all good things, those are acceptable things, but none of that is why you are here on earth. So, Paul, he never went to college. Amy Carmichael, great missionary, never got married. John Calvin, who wrote so much theology, he never had kids. And yet all three of them were used instrumentally in advancing God's kingdom on earth because the American dream is not why God put you here. Notice what else is not here. Go to church every Sunday, read your Bible, and pray. All good things. I hope you do those things. But I I hope you realize everything that we're doing together this morning, you could do it all better in heaven, right? John Mark, he's really... Good Trey, not so much. John Mark, really good at worship, but he's not choirs of angels. And so, if your mission in life was to worship, God would just take you home now. Everything that we do here will do better in heaven. This is not why you are still here on earth today. Why are you here? Jesus says, "It's to make disciples." That is your job description in this life. You are here to make disciples of Jesus. Now, what is a disciple? The, the word was commonly used in, in the Bible. It simply means a learner or a student. You can think of it as a student, but it's not, not the word student like we think of it. Many of you are students. And, and as, as, as a student, what that means is that in a particular class, you go for a few hours a week, And then you go home and you get on with your life. That's not what they meant by student or disciple in the ancient world. A disciple in the ancient world was a whole life commitment, a 24-7 commitment to your teacher as your master, Actually, the disciples, the students lived with the master. So think about the stories of the gospels. The disciples actually live with Jesus. They travel with Jesus. They eat with Jesus. That's what it looks like to live in a discipleship relationship. You're giving your full allegiance to this, this master, this, this teacher. So your job description in life is to make disciples of Jesus, meaning fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. They follow him 24-7 in every area of life. Now, it is important to clarify, it's, it's making disciples of Jesus, not of us. So it's fascinating. Paul, Peter, Matthew, none of these guys made any disciples of themselves. No, they, they only made disciples of Jesus because Jesus is the only person worthy of your life. So just to be very clear, that's true for us too. I don't want there to be any disciples of Blake. None at all, please. I'm not worthy of you following. Follow Jesus. That's why we're here, to point people to Jesus, to raise up disciples of Jesus Christ. So that that is the goal of your life, to make disciples of Jesus. And Jesus mentions a couple things that fit into making disciples. Baptism in water, that is your your public declaration of your commitment to be a disciple. That's what's going on when we baptize someone in water. They're saying, I want to follow Jesus. Now that's just the beginning, though, of this path of discipleship. Because Jesus says, this is lifelong. This is learning to obey everything that he taught. It's massive. And, and that, that big picture of discipleship helps us to clarify something. I, I want to make sure you understand this. Being a disciple of Jesus is not the same thing as being a Christian. It's not the same thing. How do you become a Christian? How do you become part of God's family? By faith alone. The moment that you are persuaded that Jesus is a son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life as a free gift, you are saved. In that moment you receive eternal life and become a child of God and you can never lose that. So salvation is by faith alone, but discipleship requires more than faith. Discipleship requires obedience and it's a lifelong process of, getting to, of learning how to obey Jesus more and more and more. And so Jesus' goal for your life is that you would grow as a disciple so that you can raise up other disciples of Jesus. And that's a good reminder of something I've said to you many times. I've lost count of how often I've said this this semester, so I, I hope you've heard it. Just in case, let me say it again. God's goal for your life is not to get you to heaven. That is way too small for God. Now heaven is included because God is good but that's too small. God wants something far more God wants you to grow as a disciple of Jesus, following him in every way so that you can raise up more disciples of Jesus so that the kingdom of God can grow. That is God's design for how to grow his kingdom on earth, not by building buildings, not by hiring pastors, but by using you to raise up followers of Jesus who raise up followers of Jesus who raise up followers of Jesus. That's exponential growth. And that's how the kingdom of of God, the church, is designed to grow. You would go out following Jesus and raising up followers of Jesus who raise up followers of Jesus on and on and on. That's God's mission for your life. You're to raise up disciples among your neighbors, among your co-workers, among your kids, so that they can in turn raise up disciples of Jesus who raise up disciples of Jesus until the church fills the whole world. That is God's mission for your life. So just to make sure you understand the significance of what God is saying, William Barclay said this, there are two great days in a person's life. The day we are born and the day we discover why. Now you know why. You were created to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's your whole reason for being here on earth. So that's the big idea. That's the 10,000 foot perspective, looking at your life, your, your job, your mission, your reason for existing, you're to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that process of making disciples of Jesus Christ begins with a message, and we get that from our second passage, end of the book of Luke. So turn to the end of the book of Luke, it's easy, just turn to John and then go back one page, end of Luke chapter 24. Jesus gives us the message we're to share that creates new disciples. And so this is a message that begins the process of raising up disciples. Look with me, Luke chapter 24, let's pick it up in verse 46. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, that is his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So discipleship begins with a message. Jesus has given us this message to proclaim, and it's really clear here in the passage. This message you're to proclaim is that Christ died and rose again so that all who repent would have forgiveness of their sins. Your mission in life is to, is to testify, to declare that message. Now let's define a few key words, Christ. That's Jesus. It's not actually Jesus' last name, it's his title. It means the one sent by God. So Jesus, the one sent by God, he died for your sins in your place and then rose from the dead to make forgiveness possible. A holy God is able to forgive sinners like us because Jesus died in our place. And now God offers that forgiveness to everyone who repents. Now, what does that word mean? Well, repent, common word in the ancient world just means turn around, literally. It's just turn around. So what are you turning around from? It's always defined in the passage. You gotta figure it out from the context. So in this passage, what are you turning around from? Well, it's from a wrong view of sin and a wrong view of Jesus. See, these people didn't understand sin. They thought it was excusable. No big deal. As long as I'm basically good or better than other people, then I'm okay and don't need forgiveness. I don't need a savior. That's the view of most of our society. Most people in America aren't going to say they're perfect. They'll admit, yeah, I do some wrong things, but I'm not as bad as that guy. There's always that but there right in the middle. Not as bad as him, and so I'm really okay. It's a wrong view of sin. You've got to turn away from that. They also have a wrong view of Jesus. What do most people in our country think about Jesus? Jesus. Most Americans actually believe that Jesus existed and they actually have a favorable opinion of him. They think he's a pretty okay guy, but that's it. Good teacher, nice man, good example. Maybe we should be more like him, but it stops there. That's a wrong view of Jesus. They don't see him as the son of God who died for us and rose from the dead. And Jesus is saying, you have to turn away from that wrong view of sin, that wrong view of me, and instead embrace the fact that you are a sinner who desperately needs a savior and that is me. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. So the moment that you believe that good news, that you trust in Jesus as a savior, repenting from, from your wrong view of sin in Jesus, embracing him as your savior... At that moment, you become a Christian. We talked about that. You're saved in that moment. And then at that moment, God calls you to, to begin to share that good news with, other, with others. Everyone who has been saved gets this new job in life. You are to be a witness. That word comes up a lot, witness. It's a legal word. From a courtroom. The idea is a, a witness is a person who testifies to the truth of something. That's your mission in life. You raise up disciples of Jesus by testifying to the truth of Jesus. So you are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is real, that he's God's son, that he died and rose from the dead. You are testifying to the facts of the gospel. That is how you raise up followers of Jesus. So. For us, we haven't actually seen Jesus face-to-face, at least probably most of us haven't. So we're not testifying to having seen Jesus in the flesh, we're testifying to having seen Jesus's power and love in our lives. For us, that's what we get to testify about, that Jesus has set us free from sins that we couldn't stop doing. Jesus has delivered us from guilt and shame and fear and regret. Jesus has transformed us. Jesus has grown within us love and and hope and made us part of a family. We get to share that good news with people. We get to testify to the fact of Jesus' work in our lives. And that actually is the most powerful tool you have to lead people to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What do people need to come to Jesus? It's usually not like the answers. It's not like these, these right answers. Everybody thinks, well, Blake, he's gonna be so much better at sharing the faith. No, I'm not. No, because what do people need to hear? They need to hear stories. They need to hear that in your life, Jesus actually made a difference. That goes so much further than all of my nice theological words. You have a story that's just as valid as mine. And so you are called to be a witness just like me. You're called to share with people your story of how Jesus entered your own life and transformed you and gave you hope and gave you joy and freed you from guilt and shame and made life worth living. You testify to the truth of Jesus's imprint on your life. And that draws people to him. That's the first stage of raising up new followers, new disciples of Jesus Christ. You testify to his love and power in your life. And then remember, not only do you testify to his power in words, but also in deeds. As Jesus told us, John chapter 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another it's by loving other people that we earn the right to share our story. I I think of of love as as currency. I'm earning currency to spend by sharing my story, by loving people. So if I've just met a person I, I don't really have a right yet to tell you about Jesus, I need to show you first that I actually care about you that this isn't about me, that I want to serve you, that I want to love you. And as I care for that person, I'm earning currency that I can spend by sharing my story, by sharing my love for Jesus. Okay, so we, we serve people. We show them the love of Christ and that earns us the right to tell them about Jesus and our story of how he's transformed us. Your purpose, your reason for existing on this planet is to raise up disciples of Jesus who will raise up disciples of Jesus who will raise up disciples of Jesus. And you do that by testifying to the truth of the good news that there is a God in heaven who loves mankind enough that he sent his son to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life. So God has called us to be his witnesses. That is scary though, right? I mean, it's it's kind of nerve-wracking to talk about Jesus with somebody who doesn't yet love Jesus because what if they're offended? What if they never want to talk to you again? And it's really hard to show them the love of Christ, because love always demands sacrifice. Love is never easy. So the good news in all of this commission is that Jesus gives us help to do this incredibly hard thing of testifying to the truth of the gospel and raising up disciples. And that's where the third passage fits in. Acts chapter one I'll just read it off the screen. This shares with us the power that Jesus gives us to fulfill his job for our lives. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you recall back to Matthew 28, Jesus said, "Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is not like my boss at my first job who takes a vacation and he is gone, totally unreachable. No, Jesus is always with you and he is with you by being in you through his spirit. His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you so that you are never alone. You have God in you. Now you may not feel that. There's a lot of days where I don't feel that. I don't sense that. I take it on faith. It's true. God lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me to allow me to do the impossible. To allow me to fulfill God's call on my life. And so the spirit living in you can give you power and courage to testify to the truth of Jesus to those who don't like Jesus. We see that. Acts chapter 4. Really fascinating. It's only a few weeks actually after the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you recall the story, when Jesus was arrested, how did Peter do in that moment? Really not good at all. He denied Jesus three times, not in front of soldiers, but in front of slave girls, because he was so terrified. He was so afraid. And a few weeks later, Acts chapter 4, he is arrested and brought before the same council that had crucified Jesus, that he was terrified of. And this time he speaks with boldness and power and clarity. How does he do it? Because he's not alone. The Holy Spirit's in him, same Spirit's in you. You don't have a different spirit, you have the same Spirit in you to give you power and boldness and courage and fearlessness to share the good news of Jesus. Not only though does the Holy Spirit give you courage and clarity, he gives you the love he demands. God demands that you are loving to other people, but God doesn't leave you alone to fulfill that command. Instead, he puts a spirit in you. And you might recall from Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit is number one, love. The love that God requires, he gives to you. You just have to share it with others. So if you will walk by the spirit, if you will obey the spirit, follow the spirit, spend time with the spirit in God's word, in prayer, he will grow love within you so that you can share the love of Christ with others so that you earn the right to tell them about Jesus. So your job in life is to make disciples. You do that by sharing the good news of Jesus. And as you do that, God is the one who himself gives you the power to do it. Never leaves you alone he's with you to give you the power to testify to Jesus. Finally, fourth thing that we learn about this mission in life, this purpose. We actually learn this from all three passages, the place. Where are we to share this good news and raise up disciples? The answer is everywhere. And again, when the Bible repeats something, God is telling you, pay attention. There is no wasted words in the Bible. Okay. So all three passages tell us all the nations all the nations in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In other words, everywhere, every square inch of the planet, God wants us raising up disciples for Jesus Christ. Now, that reality that God wants us everywhere, that, that needs to sink, sink deeply into us and correct two common errors that I see in churches and in Christians. So I want to address both of those errors directly. We need to make sure that as we think about going everywhere, we don't forget the nations, Jesus is calling us to take the gospel to every nation on earth. We actually have this amazing passage in the book of Revelation, chapter four and five, you get a glimpse of the future. If you've ever wanted someone to tell you your future, just turn there. Like, maybe not right now, because I'm still talking, but later today. Turn to Revelation four and five, you're there. It's your future. It's the entire church at the end of this age. All believers are standing before Jesus, worshiping him. And we're told there are believers there, there are disciples there from Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So in the end, every nation on earth is reached. The church really does push back the gates of hell and encompass the entire world. And all of us are worshiping God in that moment. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus himself tells us that he's not coming back till that's done. Until we've completed this job of reaching all peoples, all nations on earth, Jesus won't return. So how are we doing in this task? of reaching all tribes, tongues, people, and nations with the gospel. Rather than me tell you, I found this great video that will help you to see where we are so far as a church in this task.
1: What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group. But to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning, all ethnic groups, or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word. But ethnically, Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations, or people groups, within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs, or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb People, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist, Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to ta ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that.
0: We have a lot of work to do. And so some of you are being called by God to go. To go to these unreached people groups. We prayed for many of you last week who are going this summer to take the gospel to a group of people who who haven't yet heard I hope that inspires many more of you to go next summer and continue to take the gospel to groups of people who haven't yet met Jesus. I, I can't point to a particular verse in the Bible to prove this. This is my own belief. I personally believe that every Christian should give at least one summer of life to go overseas to an unreached people group and take them the gospel. Highly encourage you to do that. Now I do know from the Bible that all of us without exception should be involved in supporting those who do go. And that's more than just putting money in the plate. That means that you are praying for missionaries by name and giving to those missionaries by name. You are actively involved in their work to reaching the ta ethne with the gospel of Jesus. So if you're not yet engaged in, in supporting a missionary or you want to know more about maybe going yourself overseas, I'm going to give you an email address that I would love you to j- just send a quick email. Hey, I want more information on this. I'd like to support a missionary. Can you give me the list of missionaries? Whatever it dot globaloutreachatgrace-bible.org. Send them an email this week. And they will help you to get engaged in this task of reaching the nations for Jesus. So we need to avoid the mistake of forgetting the nations. At the same time, we need to make sure we don't forget home. As long as you are here, this is your Jerusalem. This is the place where God is calling you to go and make disciples. And I find it fascinating, that word go, that verb go, there's no geographical distance attached to it. So for some people, it's go 15,000 miles. For others of you, it's go 15 feet. Go is actually about initiative. It's taking the initiative to cross the hallway at work or the street in your neighborhood or the ocean to go overseas. God is calling you to go, to take the initiative where you live, where you are, and reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to introduce some new language for you that I'm going to use for many months to come to try to reinforce this for you. I want you to think about your time here in College Station, however long it is. I want you to think about investing in people where you live, where you work, and where you play. Those three spheres of influence where you can have an impact in raising up disciples of Jesus, I want you to invest in people where you live, where you work, and where you play. Where you live, that's kind of self-explanatory. That is literally where you live. So in your neighborhood or in your apartment complex, getting to know and care about and share Jesus with those who live geographically close to you. And so I want you to think about, literally the people who are right next to you, like think about this diagram. If this is your house in the center, Who are the eight around it? Could you fill in those eight boxes? So if you're in a neighborhood, maybe those are literally the eight houses around you. If you live in an apartment complex, those are like the eight doors around you, below you, beside you, above you. Could you fill in the names? I'm gonna challenge you, if you can't, it's summertime, which is a perfect time to do it. Summer, people are walking, they're out in the park, they're at the pool, you can have them over for dinner, kids can play together. I want you this summer to fill in this diagram. Get to know the names of your neighbors. And one more thing, get to know one prayer request for each. Most people will share a prayer request with you. Just say, hey, how can I pray for you? They'll, that's not a huge threat thing. So just ask, I'm not even telling you to share the gospel yet. I want you to do that eventually, but just start with a prayer request. So by the end of the summer, I hope you could fill out this diagram with the name of each of your neighbors in one prayer request for each house or apartment. You're getting to know your neighbors so that you can share Jesus with them in deeds and in words. So raise up disciples where you live. Second, raise up disciples where you work Uh, or if you're students, where you study, where you're going to school. So we need to recognize God has placed us in our particular job or our particular classes. Even though you're the ones who registered for those classes or you're the one who interviewed for that job, God is sovereign, right? So he put you there. And he put you there for a reason, and it wasn't just to do the job. It was to reach people for Jesus, to raise up disciples. And so what what you need to recognize is in that class or in that job, you might be the only glimpse of Jesus some of those people ever get. So make sure you're faithful as as a follower of Jesus to share him. When I was an engineer, long before I was a pastor, my favorite hour of the day was lunch. Part of that is that, who doesn't like lunch? It's great. But part of that was because for that one, like, protected hour, the engineers that I worked with would actually stop talking about bearings and springs for a minute. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love bearings and springs, I could talk about that all day. But there's more important things in life than that. And so for this hour, as we sat around eating lunch, the conversation, not always, but sometimes it would go deeper and we'd start talking about family or we'd start talking about what frustrates us or what we hope for in the future. And often those conversations would give me this moment where I could talk about Jesus. And so think about your job that way. God taught me during that time as an engineer, he taught me to think about my office as my Jerusalem and the lunch table as my ministry. And so those were the places where I engaged and got to know people and share Jesus with them. And it was a divine appointment. It was really used by God. So I encourage you to do the same thing. Raise up disciples where you work. So where you live, where you work, and where you play. By play, I mean your hobbies. What is it that you do when you're not working, sleeping, or eating? What do you do with your life? Now, most of you know, I'm a car guy. You've heard that before. I love working on cars and driving them fast and all that kind of stuff. And there's a large part of my life where I felt guilty about that. I thought that the Christian life was one that couldn't fit with a hobby. I felt like good Christians sacrifice their hobbies so they can go to church more. And so I did for a long time. And then God got hold of me through a number of circumstances and showed me that's not right. That, that's not life. Now hobbies are gifts from God that are meant to refresh you, to give you rest, but even more important are meant to give you an open door and the lives of men and women who are never going to walk into this building short of a miracle. Hobbies are these amazing things where people share their passion with one another and you get to go in and connect with them over that shared passion and spend time with them and you never know where the conversation is going to go. So yesterday I was at the track. I hope this sermon's coming together all right because I didn't spend a lot of time on it because I was out there because that's my mission field. I love going out there and spending time with those guys. Some of them know Jesus, but not many of them. Most of them wouldn't come to church, even if I invited them. So I get to be this glimpse of Jesus to them. I get to know them by name, and I get to know their families and what's going on in their lives, and serve them, and I cook dinner for them on Saturday nights, and I do everything that I can to just try to connect with these guys because I know this may be it for them. And so I want to use this hobby as a divine appointment to share Jesus with them. So you don't need my permission for anything, but sometimes people seem to feel better if their pastor gives them permission. So let me just make it really clear. You are allowed to skip church for a hobby. You're allowed to do that. Now, don't do it every week. I hope you'll come a lot of the time, but you don't have to be here every Sunday. You need to be out in the world. Why? Because non-Christians generally aren't here on Sunday morning. They're out at the game or in a park or at brunch or at the track. So go there. Do life with them, get to know them, be Jesus to them because they need you to share the good news that there's a God in heaven who loves them. So think about where you live, where you work and where you play. Use those three spheres as opportunities to go and make disciples of Jesus among people who may never otherwise hear about him. That's your reason for existing. That's why you're here on the planet earth raise up disciples of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we get a chance to commission some of you and celebrate some of you who are going to continue to do that in a new way. And so I want to commission and celebrate two groups. First is graduates. So if you are graduating now or at the end of the summer with any degree, please stand up. Anybody graduating? Okay, stay standing, stay standing. I want to pray for you in a second. But I want, I want you to think about your life. So your job hasn't changed. A lot is changing right now, but that hasn't changed. Your job was never about getting a degree. Your job was about raising up disciples of Jesus Christ, and that stays the same. You're just going to do it in a new place or a new way. Whether you're going for an advanced degree, going into the business world, going into ministry, whatever you're doing... God is calling you to raise up disciples in this new place and we want to pray for you in that. So I'm going to pray, then stay with me because we're going to commission one more group. So let me pray for you graduating seniors. God, we thank you so much for these men and women who are standing right now whom you have blessed and you have strengthened and you have um, equipped them to to master this degree to, to graduate. And Lord, we don't want to make light of that. That's a huge accomplishment. Help them to be able to enjoy this gift in their lives, this massive accomplishment. I pray that they would really feel celebrated for having stayed to the end, having endured. I pray though now, Lord, as they enter into a, a new journey in life, I pray that you would stay at the center. I pray that, that your mission upon their lives, your calling to raise up disciples would stay first, whether they're going into the business world, into science, into engineering, into teaching, on the mission field, back to school, wherever they're going. Help them to see as their reason for existence raising up disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray that they would pursue that passionately wherever they go. We pray that you would use them so that there would be countless men and women at that worship service of Revelation 4 and 5 through these men and women standing right here today. We pray that you would go before them, protect them from the evil one, protect them from the world, help them to follow Jesus faithfully and passionately and serve him. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. The second group that we want to commission this morning is actually a family. So come on up here, Weeza Poppies. This morning, we get to spend a moment celebrating and saying thank you to the Weeza Poppies. They're not leaving us geographically, but Jason, as many of you heard, is transitioning off our staff team here at the end of the summer. So Jason has been my partner in crime here for seven years, starting in 2010 as my partner at Southwood. And just to give you a sense of how much has changed under his leadership, when he came seven years ago, we were 500 people in one service. We're now about 1,500 people in two services. We have grown as a staff that Jason manages from eight people when he showed up to 31. So that's probably why you're leaving, because it's exhausting you. (laughs) It's a massive team here at Southwood, because there's so much ministry that God is doing here. We added it up this week, and Jason has baptized 95 of you and dedicated 104 of your children. While he's been here at Southwood. Well, Jason, as I said in the first episode, there's no words that this is completely inadequate. There's nothing I can say to, to summarize how incredible you've been, how thankful we are to you. We sometimes jokingly call him the Clydesdale because he can shoulder an unbelievable amount of weight. Much of what God has done at Southwood is because of this man and because of his wife, Jamie who's been an incredible partner to him. Their whole family, we're just really grateful for the Weeza Poppies and um, really grateful what God has done through all of them. An incredible team here at Southwood that has blessed us. But God is calling Jason to to some new things, exciting things. A couple weeks ago we got to watch as he was commissioned a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserves. So he'll be a chaplain. So for those of us who know Jason we're really excited because we can't imagine a man better fit to serve Marines and sailors in, in our armed forces. So really excited for that. He also has new opportunities in education in the business world that aren't quite ready to go public yet, but we're excited for all that God's doing through him. So I've asked uh, Eddie Colson to come up, one of our elders here at Southwood, and pray for the Poppy family as God same, continues to use them, same job, but a new place. And so we're excited for you guys. So Eddie, we'll close our service. Thank you, sir.
2: Great. Why don't you stand with me as a show of support for the Wheezy Poppies, and let's pray for them. Lord, thank you that you brought Jason and Jamie and the family to us at Grace Bible Church. Thank you that, uh, for their faithful service uh, to you. Uh, thankful, thank you for the, uh, the, the heart and the soul and the effort that they have just put into the work of the gospel. At Grace Bible Church, whether it's serving people here, uh, preparing people to go overseas, or preparing people to work in their neighborhood, Lord, just thank you uh, for the work that they have put in to Grace Bible Church. And we pray for them as they take this next step. Lord, go before them, um, take care of them, use them in these new endeavors, whether it's in the military, or we know it's in the military, and, and in whatever ways you're using him in the field of education and business and in their neighborhood, uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll go before them, that you will pave their way, and that they will have great impact for the gospel as they go. Lord, we love them. We thank you that you brought them to us for this season in their life, and we pray, Lord, for their continued uh, love for you their continued uh, focus on you and we pray lord that you would just continue to use them we love them it's in christ's name that we pray amen Amen.
0: all right well god bless you guys see some of you next week some of you in the fall and some of you on the other side